hung a hippopotamus for Christmas. A hippopotamus is all I want. <sighs> Mike, when I said we were talking about the Stooges this week, that's not what I meant. What, was that the wrong mix? <laughs> Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums, song by song, in every available mix. Roll call, John McFerrin, Dan Watkins, Rich Bennell, and Mike DeFabio. And now it's time to turn it over to this week's host, Dan. Well, wait a second, John. It looks like Dan just tore his shirt off and is going for yet another stage dive. Ooh, that looks like it hurt. Okay, he's back. Dan, our audience isn't big enough for that yet. You're going to hurt yourself. So, Dan, what album do you have for us, and why did you pick it? I have Iggy and the Stooges' 1973 album, Raw Power. Um, We haven't covered a punk album in a while, and I don't think we've covered any proto-punk at all, really. We've covered Daft Punk. That's true. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, I made that stupid joke in the Daft Punk episode. I'm just going to shut up for a while. Um, but as far as picking an album that kind of is in that period before punk that sort of predates everything, I can't think of a better example than Raw Power just because of how it really captures just the dirty, like intense, like drive that kind of inspired everything. Um, it's a legitimately kind of frightening album in its intensity and, I'm excited to talk about it. So, Dan, why don't you tell us about your history with Iggy Pop, The Stooges, and or Raw Power? Well, I first became aware of Iggy Pop as a kid when I was watching The Adventures of Pete and Pete on Nickelodeon when my sister came in the room and pointed at the TV and said, oh, my God, it's Iggy Pop. He's so old, which is funny because he wasn't 50 yet, I don't think, at the time. (laughs) He's only older now. Um and then around that same time, I saw the video for his song Butt Town on Beavis and Butthead, which they were big fans of. Butt Town, yeah! Butt Town rules. Yeah, really. <laughs> where is Butt Town? I don't know, but I'm going to find a map and go there. But the, the first time I really connected to his music in any meaningful way was when I heard Lust for Life in the film Train Spotting. And I don't care how hard Carnival Cruise tried to destroy that song, it's still an absolutely iconic song. Yeah. 
but it wasn't until I was in my punk phase in, well, punk discovery phase. I was never a punk. I was in my punk discovery phase in college when I finally bought the Iggy remix of Raw Power on CD. And when I first heard it, I couldn't believe that something from 1973 could be so heavy. And it turns out there's a reason for that. We'll get to that in a bit. But by that point, I was familiar with a handful of the Stooges' earlier, more psychedelic songs. So I was not quite expecting something as intense as like Search and Destroy. And I pretty quickly rounded out the rest of the Stooges' discography by buying all two remaining studio albums of theirs. And when it comes to solo Iggy, I haven't been quite as interested in hearing everything. In fact, you might even say I didn't bother hearing anything past 1980 until this week. But it's actually a pretty interesting discography. Rich, what about you? Well, the first time I became familiar with the person Iggy Pop was, well, as Dan alluded to, when he played the neighbor dad, Mr. Mecklenburg, on Nickelodeon's The Adventures of Pete and Pete. Uh, In fact, he was part of the international adult conspiracy, which helped run little Pete's personal superhero, Artie, the strongest man in the world, out of town. And I've never quite forgiven him for this. (laughs) That psycho Artie dared my Nona to go two days saying only the word boing. Yeah, there's also another great part where he says, he got gunk in my soup. He has a great voice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Pete and Pete was actually pretty punk rock. It was also how I first learned the names Michael Stipe, Kate Pearson, and Juliana Hatfield. They all appeared on the show at some point. Uh, As for Iggy Pop's music, well, so my history with bands on the show tends to fall into three patterns. I first heard them via Weird Al, VH1, or Duran Duran's terrible 1995 covers album, Thank You. And unfortunately for all of you here today, Iggy Pop is in that last category. So that right there was Duran Duran's cover of Success from Iggy Pop's Lust for Life album. Well, it's not the worst cover I've heard by Duran Duran. <laughs> yeah, that would be their cover of Public Enemy's 911 is a joke, right, Mike? Yeah, it's hard to beat that one. <laughs> or White Lions Don't Do It. Yeah, there are some really ill-advised covers on that album, like all of them. Uh, anyway, despite that rough beginning, I eventually learned about the Stooges and in particular Raw Power from the website Mark Prindle's Record Reviews, which we mention pretty regularly on this show. Uh, and that got me on the path to properly appreciating their music. And that's how I'm here today. Mike, what about you? I learned about the Stooges sometime back in high school. I knew who Iggy Pop was because he was on Pete and Pete and he did that real wild child song I heard sometimes. Well, I'm just out of school, I thought you were real cool Gotta dance like a fool, got the message that I gotta be a wild one Oh yeah, I'm a wild one Gonna break it loose, gonna keep on moving wild Gonna keep us moving, baby, I'm a real wild child But I didn't know he was a maniac who used to smear peanut butter all over himself and roll around in broken glass on stage The consensus about the Stooges uh, seemed to be that both Funhouse and Raw Power were equally so necessary. So I just picked one and got Funhouse. And that album is the soundtrack to a mental breakdown. Ah! 
So after being knocked flat by that album, I had no choice but to get raw power. And I made sure it was the Iggy Pop remix that I kept seeing people say was the one to get. Now, I'm lucky enough to have heard a lot of loud music and made it almost to the end of my 30s with my hearing mostly intact. But the little bit of tinnitus I do have can probably be attributed to cranking this album on a disc man turned all the way up through crappy college bookstore headphones. Do not attempt. Uh, so as for me, uh, I got into the Stooges through Iggy Pop, and I got into Iggy Pop through David Bowie. Um, at some point uh, in my 20s, I don't really remember when, uh, my brother told me that since I was a fan of uh, Berlin Trilogy era Bowie, um, I really need to get around to hearing The Idiot and Lust for Life. And so I did that. I listened to them and, you know, they they were really good. And, you know, that that gave me a, a gateway to Iggy Pop, who I, I knew as a name before then, but I never really thought of him as somebody like, oh, this is somebody I might enjoy. Uh, so I bought uh, Fun House and I was like, you know what, this this is not in my typical wheelhouse of of what I usually listen to. And yet it just it's so attractive and just such as this grimy, scuzzy, uh, sleazy way that I, I couldn't help but really, really like it. And then when I when I was reading up on the band, in particular about raw power, I, I really became intrigued by what I read about this album because I, I was really fascinated by the idea of an album that people generally agreed was on some level one of the greatest uh, whatever type of rock album this is of all time, but that existed in two very different modes that best as I could tell from the descriptions, um, each had significant advantages and significant disadvantages. So it's an, an album that is great, but doesn't actually exist in its idealized form. And so I ended up getting both uh, versions of it. I actually like both of them quite a bit, um, but again, for, for different reasons um, that I'll touch on as we, as we go through the episode. All right, so Dan, what can you tell us about this album and the Stooges? Pop was born James Osterberg in Muskegon, Michigan on April 21st, 1947. He began playing drums in the fifth grade and in high school started playing in bands around the Ann Arbor area. It was in one of these bands, the Iguanas, where he picked up his stage name. Eventually, tired of sitting behind the drums, he formed the Psychedelic Stooges with himself as the front man, Ron Ashton on guitar, his brother Scott on drums, and Dave Alexander on bass. By the way, Dan, as a one-time Michigan re resident, I must uh, correct you that it's Muskegon. Oh, I knew I was going to say that wrong. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. Make me sound stupid. 
<laughs> they went on to form a friendship with fellow Michiganders, the MC5, who got them the attention of Danny Fields, who signed both bands to Elektra Records. It was at Fields' suggestion that they shortened their name to the Stooges, and legend has it that Ron Ashton actually got Mo Howard on the phone to request permission to use the name, and Mo's response was basically, I don't care what you call yourselves as long as you don't call yourselves the Three Stooges. Well, luckily it was on the phone and he couldn't like reach through it and twist his nose and pound him on the head. <laughs> Do that little maneuver where you block the eye poking. <laughs> the band flew to New York to record their self-titled debut with producer John Cale of the Velvet Underground. The album was released in August 1969 and despite eventually going on to become a cult classic, it was a critical and commercial flop at the time. Rolling Stone called it loud, boring, tasteless, unimaginative, and childish. It's three of those things. Undaunted, the band flew to L.A. the next year to record the follow-up album Funhouse. Rather than delivering short, tight songs like the debut, they attempted to capture the more lively, improvisational feel of the band's rowdy live show. Unfortunately, sales interviews weren't much better this time around. To add to the trouble, the band was beginning to fall apart. Dave Alexander was kicked out of the band for being too drunk to play at one gig, and a revolving door of replacement bassist began to fill in. Former roadie Billy Cheatham was added as a second guitarist, but was soon replaced with James Williamson. As heroin addiction started to creep into the band, live performances became increasingly erratic and sloppy. Electra eventually lost its patience with the band and dropped them from the label. The Stooges disbanded soon after. In 1972, a freshly sober Iggy Pop met David Bowie, who agreed to fly Iggy and James Williamson out to London to record an album under Bowie's main man production company. When they were unable to find a rhythm section in England to their liking, the Ashton brothers were called in for the job, forming a new lineup of the band as Iggy and the Stooges. However, with James Williamson now being the lead guitarist, Ron begrudgingly moved to bass guitar. 
By the way, that was one thing I didn't know about the Stooges before this episode is that like, yeah, they're like a Detroit area band and they they recorded one album in New York, one in L.A. and one in London. Like they're real globetrotters. Yeah, yeah it's really interesting. And they're all like very different albums. Yeah. Iggy was set to produce and mix the album himself. And uh, things get a little messy from here. Bowie's management heard the working mixes of the album and panicked. They insisted that Bowie step in and attempt to rescue the album, make it something releasable. Bowie claims that Iggy gave him a 24-track tape that had basically most of the band on one track, the vocals on another track, and the lead guitar for dubs on another track, with the remaining tracks just empty. So this obviously didn't give Bowie much to work with. He claimed that the mixing job really consists of just moving the guitar and the vocals up and down as needed and adding a few post-production touches here and there. Uh, the one thing I find confusing, though, is apparently there's evidence that there actually are isolated tracks of the band. So I'm not sure what actually happened. I don't know if Iggy just gave Bowie some weird semi-mixed concoction. Yeah, I, I went to the Steve Hoffman music forums where, you know, music nerds and audiophiles live. And there was some like speculation about that, too, like because that like Iggy wouldn't have been able to remix and remaster the album to the extent that he did in the 90s uh, like with only three tracks but uh, I, I don't know I'm just going on pure speculation here and also read that like yeah like no engineer in his right mind would have let Iggy do that so, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it was yeah it was in 1997 when Iggy issued his own what he calls very violent remix of the album cranking just everything into the red and creating what is literally one of the loudest CDs ever released uh, there's plenty of debate over what is the definitive version of the album, as John was mentioning earlier. Uh, Ron Ashton and James Williamson were openly critical of the remix at the time. And Iggy's kind of waffled over the years. I've heard him say bad things about the Bowie mix, you know, probably around the time he remixed it. But now I've heard of more recent quotes where he says he actually agrees that the Bowie mix is the best, you know, whatever. Um, and like, I, I agree with John that both versions have their own merits and neither one is perfect. They are kind of... There's probably a good album somewhere in the middle. I will say, uh, you know, the big argument, the big problem with the the remix is that it is very loud. And if you are at all a, an audiophile, you will find the digital clipping pretty rough. So one way around that is there is a vinyl issue of the Iggy Mix that is mastered much more politely. And it's actually a pretty good listen. So if you're looking for something in between, that's a good one to go with. Um, by the way, I was looking at the uh, credits for the for the 1997 version, and it was executive produced by Bruce Dickinson. And the yes, Bruce that Dickinson? is the Bruce Dickinson <laughs> from the Saturday Night Live More Cowbell sketch. Glorious. Babies, before we're done here, y'all be wearing gold-plated diapers. What does that mean? Never question Bruce Dickinson. Roll it. So was this Stitcher's album a hit? No, it wasn't. The band returned to the U.S. and resumed playing live shows, including some incredibly unglamorous ones. A notorious example can be heard on the semi-official bootleg album Metallic K.O. The band plays for a less than appreciative crowd that becomes increasingly hostile as a heavily intoxicated Iggy baits them into pelting the band with ice, eggs, jelly beans, and beer bottles. Another famous show saw the band performing before an audience of bikers, and it ended with Iggy challenging one of the said bikers to a fight and promptly getting knocked out. 
As you might imagine at this rate, the band was not long for this world. And due to growing addiction issues yet again and just band infighting, they called it a day in February 1974. Well, they have a couple of terrible reunion albums too, right? At least that's what Mike told me. Yeah, I've never they heard terrible. I've heard the weirdness and it's awful. It's hmm. uh, a void. Well, that's the postscript on their career. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So before we crank up the volume on raw power... If you're enjoying Discord and Rhyme and want to support the ongoing production of this podcast with a monthly donation, you can sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash discordpod. And we have some brand new donors this week. Paul, Marcus, and Benjamin. Thanks, guys. You're the best. Woo! And, as always, thanks to everyone who has been supporting us along the way. This episode has a sponsor. Whoa. We are sponsored by the Hall of Songs podcast. Chris and Tim nominate up to 12 songs that came out in a given year, starting in 1951, and listeners vote on which ones get inducted into their Hall of Songs. They've just reached the 1970s, which you know from listening to our podcast was an incredible decade for music. So go on over to hallofsongs.com or find Hall of Songs in your podcast app of choice and help them decide what the best songs are. If you want more Stooges, look for their 1969 episode, where they talked about I Want to Be Your Dog. Excellent choice. Yeah, and if any other listeners would like us to plug their project, uh, just go to our Patreon and sign up at the $10 a month level for two months, and uh, then you'll, we'll, we'll read your copy right here. Uh, also, if you sign up for our Patreon at the $3 a month level, you'll get access to a special bonus feed of exclusive episodes with new ones being added every month, so it only gets more and more valuable with time. Uh, and recently, we've started branching out into newer music with episodes on the album Future Nostalgia by Dua Lipa for the pop kids and Stranger in the Alps by Phoebe Bridgers for the sad indie kids. And we also just released a really fun episode where Amanda talked with Mike and John about songs she first learned about because they were covered by Nazareth, uh, which if you've been listening to us long enough, you know that's a that's a recurring theme on this podcast. So uh, yeah, once again, if you'd like to hear these, sign up at patreon.com slash discordpod. And if you have any questions or feedback about the show or just want to drop us a line, you can follow us on Twitter at discordpod. And you can email us at discordpod at gmail.com. Finally, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, it helps us out a lot if you leave us a rating or a review, because Apple uses that data to recommend us to other new listeners. And if you're not on Apple, spread the word any way you can. We're a small, independent podcast, and we rely pretty heavily on word of mouth to help grow our audience. That is true. And with that... We can go now into talking about the album. We move to track one. This is called Search and Destroy. I'm a skywalking cheetah with a hat full of napalm. That's one way to open a song. <laughs> I'm a runaway son of the nuclear A-bomb I am a world's forgotten boy The one who searches and destroys Somebody gotta help me up, please Somebody gotta save my soul Baby, that's me for me oh! Look out, honey, cause me 
The title Search and Destroy comes from a Time Magazine headline on an article about the Vietnam War. And Iggy says that he was sitting in a park in London snorting heroin while reading the article. It's like his version of Joni Mitchell's California. (laughs) (laughs) He proceeded to write this set of lyrics of just this apocalyptic, just hellscape. And like Rich mentioned in the, the clip, Whenever I come across any list of great opening lines for songs, I'm the street walking cheetah with a heart full of napalm usually comes up. And there's a good reason for it, because I can't think of a better way to set the stage for what's to come ahead of just the, the menace of this album. It is kind of funny that the the cheetah line is a reference to a jacket he wore that had a picture of a cheetah on it. Huh. But he makes it sound dangerous here. <laughs> when they broke the news to Iggy that David Bowie would be taking over the the mixing duties of the album, one of Iggy's uh, requests was that they keep his mix of Search and Destroy. And what I learned was actually they gave him his wish on the U.S. copy of the album. But in the U.K., they got the Bowie mix because I have a copy of the vinyl. And when you drop the needle, you hear the band... And then the lead guitar comes in at twice the volume and it knocks your face off. Like, it's ridiculous. In a more um, listener-friendly mix, which is the Bowie mix, the way this song just starts, where it's just immediate, like it's such an, like a, an incredible opening, where it's just like dropping a needle and having a train barreling through your speakers at you. But one of the things that's interesting is Iggy took kind of a lot of pride in the fact that this song has a pre-chorus and a chorus. (laughs) So you kind of get this build of what you think is going to be the chorus, and then the actual chorus comes in later on. And going to the this album's punk rock bona fides, uh, my much beloved uh, Rhino box set, No Thanks, the uh, '70s punk rock rebellion, features this song, and it is the earliest song on the on the box set. So I find that interesting that it kind of earns its spot as the earliest genesis of punk, at least according to Rhino. And this song has been covered by a lot of people, um, kind of famously by The Dictators, which is a New York punk band of the late 70s, uh, later by Def Leppard, The Dead Boys, and Discord and Rhyme favorites, The Red Hot Chili Peppers. Mm. There's, the cover's kind of boring. <laughs> but the strange of the bunch by far has to be Ministry's weird, slowed down industrial reimagining of the song. It's just made for movie trailer. No, movie trailer today would be a soft minor (laughs) key version. Yeah, sung by Lord. It would be acoustic. 
This is an army commercial. That's right. Yeah, with a big bass drop. Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Has anybody fallen off as hard as Ministry? Yeah, that cover oh, was God. from this year, <laughs> we should note. Buy it now. New release. Also, Dan mentioned that Def Leppard covered it, and I just had to look it up and hear what that, what that sounded like as well. So here it is. And I want... Yeah, so they play it pretty straight. I think the main reason I wanted to clip it is because Joe Elliott does the George W. Bush pronunciation of nuclear A-bomb. Wonderful. (laughs) Rich, what do you think of the song? Oh, well, this song could almost be its own episode, you know, if we were like Song Exploder or something instead of an album-focused podcast. But it's like tough to whittle down all that it does and everything it represents. Because, yeah, like Dan said, it had influence on so many punk bands and it's been covered so many times, including, yeah, unfortunately by Ministry. Uh, but in fact, there's a YouTube video from the account Produced Like a Pro, which is devoted entirely to the song as part of the series Songs That Changed Music. Uh, and I'll link to it in the show notes. And uh, the main reason I bring that up is because it, it includes, well, this clip I'm going to play, which is James Williamson's isolated guitar track on this song. And Ooh. here it is. Oh, cool. A quick post-production note before we continue. Uh, After the recording, I discovered that the source of the isolated guitar track you're about to hear is, in fact, Rock Band 3. And that's why it sounds as choppy as it does, because it's, it's not what you would hear if you just put the original tapes on and pulled the faders up. It switches back between different guitar tracks for the sake of gameplay. We didn't want to scrap the whole conversation, so I'm just putting this here to clear things up. And now, here is James Williamson's guitar from Search and Destroy, as heard in Rock Band 3. Yeah, I love how choppy it is. Yeah. I think it's funny that one of the arguments of there being isolated tracks is its existence on a rock band. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that, that wasn't like a recreation. That was, Those were the original masters? Supposedly. Because I, I know that I on don't... Guitar Hero, sometimes they just had like somebody do like an expert recreation of the songs. Uh, yeah, but, it, but wasn't that nuts? Like, not just how much is going on, but like the range of like tones and timbres they spliced together. Because like, uh, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll have more to say about James Williamson himself later on in the episode, because I know Dan has some commentary devoted to him in a later song. But uh, for now, I just wanted to focus on how wonderfully everything hangs together in this song, like despite everything about the production. Because like, like when you listen to the guitar track on its own, like right there, you can tell what a choppy pa- patchwork it is. But like the final product sounds completely natural. You can't even tell. Mike, what do you think? Oh, it's just one of the greatest album openers in all of rock music. No big deal. <laughs> you can immediately hear the difference in songwriting that, that James Williamson brought to the band. Like Funhouse is a powerful record and it's an all time great, but its effect is sort of like a drunken haymaker. And this is more like a laser-guided precision strike. The original mix is horrendous, but it would be just as monumental even if that were all we had. I mean, this song is so punk rock that the words search and destroy were the first tattoo Henry Rollins ever got. I think my favorite thing about it, which you can really hear in the Iggy mix, uh, is that the whole thing is just one big build. It starts at maximum volume and then just keeps getting louder. 
And it ends with one of my favorite tricks, which is making you think the song has reached peak intensity before kicking it up one more notch. And then you realize the song has actually been holding back the whole time. Also, if you listen really carefully, there are parts where way in the back of the mix, you can hear actual swords clashing together in time with the music. It's during the pre-chorus. <laughs> you can hear... You mean like there were real swords in the studio? Or yeah, did they use they're actually like a... smashing swords together. Of course they cool. were. <laughs> it's a completely unnecessary addition to the song, and I love that it's there. Where did they get the swords? Did you know that? Did you find I mean, that out? I don't remember. I think it's it's in the liner notes to the Iggy mix, but I, I need to pull that out and see. Well, if we find out the information, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. So are you guys at all aware of James Williamson's post-music career? Yes. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he became an electrical engineer and eventually worked his way up to become a vice president at Sony. Oh, right. And he actually like became like a major uh part of, of a division there that helped in the development of the Blu-ray format. Oh, interesting. And I mentioned this because I, I remember back, um, you know, 15 years ago, I was on some forum or another and somebody posted a picture of like what he looked like uh, at that time, like when he's in his mid 50s. And somebody commented that like he looked like a uh, a very proper accountant whose face would be like exploded from hearing the riff. Uh, to search and destroy <laughs> rather than, than the man who played it in the first place. Um, and and it's it just really, really fascinating to me. Just like this could turn it into that person. Then he could go back and play it, this stuff again uh, later. I don't have that much to add about the, the song as a whole. I, I absolutely love it. Um, and I like it in both, both mixes. I think that the, the, the Bowie mix retains a little bit of the, the scuzz and mystery that is is largely characteristics of the Bowie mystery. It, it appears even here, uh, whereas the uh, the Iggy mix from the get go is just about punching you in the face repeatedly and say you're going to like it. But yeah, this this is an all time classic. Um, it might be my favorite on the album. There's there's one later uh, that I have to think about uh, that might uh, sneak in there. Uh, but yeah. Really, really great. And that whole story about James Williamson reminds me of our Yellow Pill series where one of the members of the band, the Speedies, went on to invent Quick Time. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, also, one last thing. This song has been used in a whole bunch of movies over the years. And I, I personally most closely associate it with the Wes Anderson movie, The Life Aquatic. Yes. Uh, where it plays during a sequence where Bill Murray is chasing pirates off of his ship. It's really cool. <laughs> oh, and I also wanted to mention that... Uh, there is a sequence uh, from the show Lost where this appears. Oh, um, right. It's yeah. just this, this little bit that just lives in my head. So uh, in season six, after uh, the other's compound has gotten uh, sent forward in time from, you know, the, from the 70s. What, into, whatever into the, the hell happened on that show. Yeah, yeah whatever the hell happened. Uh, the character Sawyer is sitting in the barracks, very, very angry and sullen for justifiable reasons. And he is blasting. Uh, this song in the background and at first you like you just hear it in the distance as as there's a as a point of view shot of of uh, the man in black making his way over there but yet yeah, I was always like very very tickled at the fact that this is what he chose to listen to in that moment so is the flash sideways version of Sawyer listening to the other mix ha! that's what I assume yes <laughs> uh, lost all right let's move on uh, track two is called gimme danger
little stranger And I'll feel you are being Give me danger, little stranger And I'll feel your disease There's nothing in my dream Just some ugly memories Kiss me like the ocean breeze So one of the agreements that Columbia Records had with the band was that they include two ballads on the album. Ballad. Yeah. <laughs> and I just love it. This was their idea of a ballad. This is the this... you've lost that love and feeling of the album. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> they give him this uneasy, spooky simmer that builds into this explosive chorus with Iggy screaming, swear you're going to feel my hand at you. Ballad. One of the the interesting touches that Bowie did on this track in particular was he, he used this device called a time cube. Nature's harmonic simultaneous four day time cube as theorized by Gene Ray, the wisest human. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. When I hear the name time cube, I think of that conspiracy website from the 90s and 2000s. Ah, those are the days. It, it was a different time cube. Um, (laughs) yeah now the whole internet is like that uh but what it was was it was this kind of crude rudimentary device that was like a tube where you would feed the signal into one end and on the other end it would produce this like echo effect and that's what you're hearing on the guitar here it's kind of giving me that that eerie echoey distant sound and i think this is a song where the the two mixes have interesting differences because I, I think Iggy's mix loses a lot of the kind of eerie ambiance that the Bowie mix adds. It, it kind of turns into just like, like a regular rock song. This is one where I definitely prefer what Bowie did better because it just it has kind of a, a more weird artsy sort of sound to it that I like. But it's it's a great great song. Again, the the way it builds into that just explosion is really really exciting.
As far as covers go, this was featured, it was sung by Ewan McGregor, of all people, as the Iggy surrogate in the Todd Haynes movie Velvet Goldmine. Well, if you will pay my lover, I will shoot her But if you will be my master, then I will do anything. It's nothing left alive but some. I never saw that. It's okay. So I know that uh, Mike uh, will disagree with this, but I'm actually with Dan on preferring the Bowie mix to the Iggy mix. I, I like both a lot, but yeah, there there is just kind of this this eerie, uh, the simmering mystery uh, mm. in in the mix that, and just the the sense of the dangers coming. It just never quite gets all the way there, at least not as quickly as it necessarily does in the Iggy mix. Um, again, there's there, there's good sides and bad sides. I like both versions of it, but yeah, um, if if I had to like you know create a version of the album that chose one from from each, I think that the Bowie, actually, in fact, in fact, I know that the Bowie version is the one that would make the cut for me on this one. I do like the the spookiness of the Bowie mix. It's got this sort of sort of fog that envelops it, but once once the song really kicks in and that you know extra electric guitar comes in i just want the drums to be louder i think it's a great song either way but uh the iggy mix might actually be my favorite track two awesome of all the track twos that ever track to two it's a good one actually if i were to make a a 22 twos mix of my own this would be track two because it's that perfect (laughs) interesting the way it starts out with a, a more subtle kind of menace and then gradually starts to show its fangs is just so well done. Well, the tone it strikes kind of reminds me of subhuman from the secret treaties by blue Oyster cult, which we oh, talked about yeah. like how it, well, cause yeah. the way we described that, it was, it's like kind of like you're tunneling into the album. Like you're carrying a torch through a darkened corridor. Yeah. Oh, I can hear that. Yeah. Also, Iggy's vocal here is one of his absolute best. Like, if anybody else sang these words, it would probably just sound like a lot of I'm bad silliness. I'm bad. (laughs) (laughs) But, But Iggy really does sound dangerous here. And more importantly than that, he makes you feel dangerous when you're listening to it. Even if you're me and you're about as dangerous as a pancake. I, I'm right now wearing my my bomber jacket because you, you got to got to wear a leather jacket if you're talking about the Stooges. And I, I got it because I thought it would make me look cool and tough. And instead, I, I kind of look like a, a mid 80s moody blue. <laughs> oh, my so. gosh, you do. <laughs> Rich, what do you think? Well, regarding the, t- the whole debate between the two mixes, well, so I... I I was doing a side by side comparison of like a remaster of the Bowie mix with the with the vinyl version of the Iggy mix, uh, and uh, I don't know, like yeah, there are audible differences, but like I, after a while, it all kind of melted into a formless blur to me, and 
that I'm, I'm not saying that there aren't differences between the two, but like if you gave me like a men in black style brain wipe that just happened to delete only my memories of raw power and then handed me like either version of this album and told me that it was the only version, like I, I wouldn't be able to tell you that anything is off. Like they sound different, but they both sound so much like so many hard rock albums that I've heard before. And I, I, I don't know, like, I, I'm not trying to be like all deconstructionist here and claim that there are no differences. But like uh, we were doing some pre-show discussion of this album and Mike said something really spot on, which is that there are so many steps that music goes through before it gets to your ears, like regardless of the mix. Yeah. L- like uh, like even setting aside the difference between the two mixes, like vinyl sounds different from digital or cassette or eight track, like speakers sound different from headphones. Uh, speakers themselves sound different based on the quality of your gear, where you place them. Uh, the acoustics of your of your room or your car and there's just all sorts of things like even after the music gets to your ear like different people hear different things based on your age like genetic factors hearing loss etc and I, I could go on and on and on but like I, I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that like audiophiles can debate the two mixes of raw power as much as they want but like the reality for me is that like raw power and every album ever made for that matter like it, it effectively exists as like millions and millions of different mixes so well, the, the thing about raw power is that it was never going to be an audiophile's favorite album no matter what was done with it like it's it's not the nightfly <laughs> yeah i was thinking that too because like no matter what you listen to it's kind of a messy album yeah and I don't know, because yeah. like I'm, I'm honestly like not sure like what the versions I listened to were, because the, the version of the Bowie mix I listened to on Spotify uh, a couple of days ago. I agree. That one sounds awful for some reason. But like then I listened to a different remaster and it sounded great. So I, I don't know how many versions of this album and how many mixes actually exist. Well, and to confuse matters, there is something called Rough Power, which is apparently a bootlegged version of Iggy's original mix, which I've not heard. Now I'm curious to hear it. I didn't get to it in time, but... Just to add to the confusion. Well, setting all of that aside, I, I guess just talking about Gimme Danger itself, like uh, this is it's so good. It's my favorite Stooges song. I, I love it so much. Like uh, in, in regards to the actual content of the song, like Iggy Pop has said that one of his formative experiences was seeing the Doors live. Uh, mm. And for the Stooges, if you've listened to all three of their albums, you know that that was both for better and for worse and for the <laughs> worse. Like so anyone who's heard the first Stooges album is familiar with the song We Will Fall which is a 10 minute yep. epic that sounds like they like <laughs> mashed up the velvet underground with like any given piece of drugged out Jim Morrison poetry. It is not very good at all. Then I whispered to me. But for the better, you've got this song like this is like Strange Days doors that like the really yeah. good doors, the mm-hmm. uh, the doors that could like ride a dark groove and really draw you into their world. Because uh, th- there was a long period where it was like really fashionable to hate on the doors just because of like the, you know, crappy Jim Morrison poetry and et cetera, et cetera. But they had some really good stuff and it was always in this vein. Yeah, I love dark doors. We It's funny, like, if you look at that first Stooges album cover, too, you see so much, like, of the doors, like, in their, yeah. like, the, 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 the composition of photography and everything. And again, both Electra artists, too. Mm-hmm. So, so I think same, 
Same managers, too, I believe. All right. I think we're done here. Yeah. Let's move on. This next track is called Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell. was originally titled hard to beat but the main man management bowie's company thought that the key line from the song made for a better title and changed it at the last second and iggy was unaware of the switch until copies of the album were printed and he was not happy uh he eventually came around to it and as well he should have because it's a much better title i think yeah <laughs> it even became an adult swim uh tv series which i've not seen i want to talk a little bit about yeah, the move from Ron Ashton to James Williamson. One of the main reasons of the change in the sound of the band is James Williamson. You know, prior to to his entrance, Ron Ashton was the lead guitarist and he basically wrote all the riffs. And Ron's approach was more of this kind of psychedelic laid back groove based kind of feel. Well I say Well I say come on Ron I say, I say come on Ron James Williamson has this edgier sort of speed addled angle where he just kind of like spurts out these like quick just flurries of notes, not like a, you know, show off shredder kind of way, but just like it's just like more of an edgy kind of like uh, like nervous sort of like twitchy style of playing. And it's a lot uh, more aggressive. And um, you hear a lot of them on this song in particular. There's a lot of like long stretches. Uh this song in particular, it's one of the more middle tier songs for me. I love the energy of it, but it doesn't have the most distinctive melody for me. But, uh, but I still like it. I think it's a classic title is the, yeah. is the <laughs> yeah. main like, legacy the of this song. <laughs> yeah, because uh, I also discovered that Adult Swim show. It's apparently like a, a sitcom starring Matt Servito as the devil and that he played Agent 
Harris on The Sopranos, if, if you're not familiar with mm-hmm. his name. Uh, but I, I haven't seen it because I don't have a very high tolerance for Adult Swim that isn't Venture Brothers. But I, I don't know. I, I just think that that like it, it speaks to what a meme this band has become, like whether or not you actually know their their music. Like uh, like my wife isn't familiar with the Stooges, but when I mentioned this song title, she'd heard of it because it's just a phrase that oh, has really? entered wider yeah. pop culture. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Huh. Yeah. And to jump off your point about James Williamson. So to to prep for this episode, I watched the 2016 Stooges documentary, Gimme Danger, which was directed by Jim Jarmusch. It's honestly surprising how ordinary the documentary feels like given the director and subject matter. I I think I I suspect that there was some corporate involvement involved because Amazon produced it. Uh, But Iggy Pop himself is a really great interviewee. And my favorite bit is when he describes uh, Williamson's guitar style, which is, quote, as if someone just let a drug dog into the house and it's big and he finds every corner of a musical premise and of a piece of space and time and finds every detail, end quote. Wow. Really good. I could hear Iggy talk all day. Yeah. Yeah. I also love that like part of the interviews are conducted in his laundry room just as kind of like, you know, proof <laughs> that he owns shirts. <laughs> Either way, like his phrase right there, that's a perfect description of the sort of like manic guitar style throughout this album. It's like it's all over the place. It fills all of the space and it, it kind of takes up all the air in the room. But uh, I don't know, like like the production manages to account for that, uh, like I was talking about during Search and Destroy. And uh, millions of guitar players have chased this style since. Did anything else sound this aggressive in 1973? Like, yeah. Bowie's mix isn't as in your face as Iggy's, but still, I think I think this was as harsh as vocals got back then. And I don't think it was particularly close. Like, I'm surprised Iggy was ever able to sing again after recording this. But I'm also surprised that he's still alive. So it looks good, too. (laughs) (laughs) He does. He actually, yeah, he hasn't aged much since like 1990. I, I mean, you you can tell he's like an aging rock star, but he still basically looks the same. Yeah. But what I'm not surprised about is that a major record label had no idea what to do with music like this that couldn't possibly care less about being liked. Maybe not less than White Light, White Heat, but less than most things. If I went to shake this song's hand, it would punch me in the face and then I would thank it. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that description. Why Light Why Heat's actually a good comparison because it has a, it's a similar kind of like brittle sounding album that sounds just kind of like it's just hanging together. Yeah, going back to what, what Dan said. Yeah, I think middle tier is a good way way to put it. Um, this is one that I, I I like a lot, even though like forming concrete impressions of it is is a little difficult for me. It's one where I I mostly just get lost in the sound, get lost in just the just the pure aggression of of the guitar playing in particular. But it's it's a really really great aggression, and it's it's one that you know just kind of shakes me to my core when I listen to it. One thing I do want to mention is that uh, Bowie later had a song uh, on the album Hours uh, with a similar title called The uh, The Pretty Things Are Going to Hell. Oh, right. And, but, it, but it's fascinating because, like, you know, it's it's Hours era Bowie. Like, so this is like when he was a very, very quiet, I'm going to make a bunch of ballads, but he just randomly stuck this attempt at a rocker, which, you know, clearly is, like, trying to be at least somewhat of uh, an homage to that song, but it's... 
it, it, it's a lot more muted and it's and it's not nearly as as effective as as this one could possibly be But yeah, I, I think it's interesting that that Bowie would include a nod to this one at an, in an era that was completely inappropriate for this type of material. All right, let's move on. Uh, the next one is called Penetration. John, I assigned you as the moderator for this episode just because I wanted to hear you say penetration. Oh, good. <laughs> What's this one about? first song for the album that Iggy and James worked out together uh, Iggy said that this is a song where they felt they found a sound that they could basically follow to create the rest of the album just kind of interesting because it's one of the slower tracks this is probably my favorite vocal delivery of the album I love how it just sounds like Iggy's crawling around the studio floor and it's like rolling around his back to get these just crazy like like these just weird sounds he's he's making and it's got another eerie little feel to it that little odd celesta line is just a nice touch that adds a little splash of color between the sandwich of more straight ahead rockers but i, I like it it's, it's a nice moody kind of pissed off song yeah and if you if you want to hear more about the celesta mike did a good explainer on it in our velvet underground episode yeah that celeste part is is really fascinating to me it's because like the song absolutely could have gotten by without it but once you realize that it's there like you can't i I, for me i can't imagine it without it it's also a case where like I, i initially thought like oh you know the the Bowie mix w- w- must clearly be the better one for this because, uh, you know, it's going to to fit more into the mystery. But then, like, hearing these versions back and forth as as I was prepping for this, and I actually kind of became partial to the Iggy uh, mix for this just because having that Celesta in there is is so incongruous. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> and, like, the, the ridiculousness of it just, like, becomes more stark. You just have th- this little delicacy, uh, you know, in this sewer of sound.
And yeah, I, I, I echo the uh, the remarks on, on the vocal delivery here. Just like just like he's trying to conjure up every little bit of of grunting and spittle that he can he can possibly squeeze out. It's it's just so scuzzy, and I love it so much. Yeah, I'm I'm with you, John. Uh, I'm, I got to give the edge to the Iggy mix uh, because it it highlights that Celesta a lot more, and it's just it's so perfectly wrong how they were able to make that instrument sound sleazy. It's like they corrupted it. <laughs> but this is a great song, however you mix it. It's it's a one riff wonder, like a fall song, and that <laughs> the fall yep. would definitely do a song called Penetration. <laughs> yeah, <Yep. laughs> Penetration. <laughs> penetration uh, yeah you gotta get the no <laughs> oh you're right you're right <laughs> that extra syllable i should have been prepared <laughs> and i mean the, the riff in this song is gonna rule no matter how it's presented and i i agree about iggy's vocal here he sounds absolutely feral he sounds like he's in must you didn't think i was gonna fit in some details about the reproductive cycles of elephants here did you <laughs> No, I expected that. I should have been ready for it. That's that's what I'm here for, for, for surprises. Rich, can you top that? Not really. I, I, I just love the way the song like vamps on the same chord sequence for just three and a half minutes, just pounding away. Like it almost feels like a metaphor for well, this is a family podcast. So let's let's yes. say it's like a drill boring deeper and deeper into the earth. Like like, you know, one of those drill vehicles from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that the shredder yes. used to travel back and <laughs> forth from the Technodrome. See there, yes. I made it nice and kid friendly. Exactly. Uh, did that top the elephant yes. thing, Mike? I think it may have. Cool. Uh, also, this seems as good a place as any to mention another fun fact I learned from the Gimme Danger documentary, which is that Iggy used to be a big fan of Howdy Doody. And one of the <laughs> rules for fan letters on that show was that they had to be 25 words or less or Buffalo Bob Smith wouldn't read them. Uh, and, and Iggy claimed that he applied that same philosophy to most of his own lyrics. And just for kicks, I checked to see if the song follows those rules. Uh, and it doesn't quite. It has about 30 or 31 distinct words, but it, you, you can fudge it down to 25, like on a technicality, if you uh, exclude filler words like man and babe and combine different forms of the verbs go and be into a single entry. So uh, what I'm saying is that I spent way too long this morning closely studying the lyrics to penetration in the name of science. <laughs> Uh, but I do think it's interesting that you can draw a line between Howdy Doody and the paucity of lyrics in punk rock. That, I mean, that is like, you know, if Iggy wasn't just making stuff up on the spot just to be a fun interviewee. That's fantastic. <laughs> oh, I love it. All right, let's move on. Uh, next track is the title track. This is Raw Power. Everybody always trying to tell me what to do 
Power is a song that's so primal. I don't really know what to say about it. It it really just hammers that riff over your head, and it's awesome. But I mean, this is one of the few songs I can play on piano, though, ha! because it is one note on piano. <laughs> Me too. It is. It is great that just insistent little piano notes. It's it's it's, it's great, but. I, I, I of all the songs on the album, this is the one I have the least to actually say about. Well, we have a cover of it, right? Because uh, Yola Tango covered it on their covers album. Yola Tango is murdering the classics. Yeah, they played on the fly. They yeah. did okay with it. Dance to the beat of the living dance. And just to contextualize this for listeners who haven't heard bits from this album on our earlier episodes, uh, Yola Tango would, uh, like listeners to WFMU would call in and just request things for Yola Tango and they would play it whether or not they knew the song. Sounds like they knew this one. Yeah, since Sarah Kaplan was a music critic, of course he knows this song. Yeah. <laughs> this is one that I, I also actually hear the, the Velvet Underground bit in just because of that piano tucked in the background. Oh, like yeah. without it, it wouldn't be there. It would it would just be like this this raucous sort of metallic punk song. But with that piano, like it becomes the just this primal mass of noise that I find really really intriguing. But yeah, it's you know yeah it's it's an incredible riff that just burrows into your gut over and over again, and you just kind of ride it out. You 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 feel the song more than you necessarily listen to it in any uh, coherent sort of way. One of the funny things about that Metallic KO album I mentioned earlier is they had a piano player at the time. And so I just like this image of this poor piano player being pelted with eggs and beer bottles. Who's just playing like background stuff for the Stooges. He probably doesn't want to part of this. <laughs> Don't egg me. I'm only the piano player. <laughs> uh, Rich? Well, I'm going to use side two of Raw Power to kind of zoom out a little bit and talk about the wider musical world that surrounded the Stooges because uh, like some bands who were kind of playing in the same ballpark and how this moment in hard rock was sort of a like a tapestry of influences and trends that eventually coalesced into punk rock. Uh, and the band this song makes me think of is the New York Dolls. Because like, uh, yeah. yes. uh, like the New York Dolls often get cited alongside the Stooges as proto-punk and uh, like they perform this amped up glam rock form of like rockabilly that sounds like a supercharged Jerry Lee Lewis. They do hot, 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 right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I can also hear hear a bit of the New York Dolls in Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell. It's not just this song. It's like sloppy Rolling Stones. Basically, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's all sorts of influences like going back and forth here. Uh, like the Stooges were part of a musical ecosystem, I guess, I guess is the point I'm trying to make here. Mike? Well, Raw Power is a song that kind of resists analysis, and I like that about it. Like the riff doesn't sound like it was written. It sounds like it grew out of the ground or something. <laughs> the lyrics sound like Iggy wrote them in about five minutes. 
if you didn't make them up on the spot. Even then, you, you still get lines like, raw power got a heel in hand, raw power can destroy a man, <laughs> which pretty much just lays out Iggy's whole philosophy of music right there. There is a, a famous Canadian TV interview he did in, I believe, 1977 that I think is relevant. And it was conveniently sampled by Mogwai in a track of theirs called Punk Rock. So I'm going to go ahead and clip that here. You see what, what sounds to you like a big load of trashy old noise is in fact the brilliant music of a genius, myself. And that music is so powerful that it's quite beyond my control. And uh, when I'm in the grips of it, I don't feel pleasure and I don't feel pain, either physically or emotionally. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Have you ever, have you ever felt like that? When you just, when you just, you couldn't feel anything and you didn't want to either. You know, like that. Some critics, do you understand what I'm saying, sir? What album is this song? It's on Come On, Die Young. Hey, don't remember that one. That was cool. The British conductor Thomas Beecham once said that the function of music is to release us from the tyranny of conscious thought. And I don't know about you, but my conscious thought can be awfully tyrannical. So as much as I love being part of a podcast where eight people nerd out about music to a sometimes comical degree, I also appreciate the way that music can allow you for just a moment to not have to think. And that is my deep analysis of raw power. Here, here. That was good. <laughs> Thank you. All right, let's move on. This next track is called I Need Somebody. the second ballad as promised to Columbia Records. Ballad. <laughs> Unlike Gimme Danger, this one is actually a proper cooldown. Uh, it doesn't have any weird tension in it. Um, however, it still sounds decadent and sleazy. So congratulations, Stooges. You managed to fulfill the two ballad requirement without turning in like a bad power ballad or something. I used to kind of consider this one a lesser track, but I think I've grown to appreciate having this kind of gear shift 
in the middle of the album. Um, it, it's not a favorite, but it is a nice change of pace. And I kind of like how you have these James Williamson guitar lines kind of bubbling up in between the little acoustic bits. Um, but yeah. Well, since I'm doing a little tour of hard rock bands here, well, this song reminds me of one of the Stooges fellow Detroit area bands and one that Dan has discussed before on this podcast. And that's Alice Cooper. Yeah. Uh, Cause I, I had trouble. So I had trouble finding an Alice Cooper song that perfectly echoes. I need somebody because it's such an amalgam of pieces of their sound. Uh, so the song I decided comes closest is one of their biggest hits. And that's I'm 18. <laughs> leads me to something I've wanted to discuss, uh, which is Iggy as a vocalist, because because uh, I've listened to a lot of Stooges and a decent amount of solo Iggy pop. And, and for the life of me, I can't really pin down exactly what he sounds like as a vocalist. Like, uh, like sometimes he sounds like Bowie. Sometimes he sounds like Lou Reed. Sometimes he sounds like Jim Morrison. And, and on this song, he sounds like Alice Cooper or I guess Vincent Fernier, since he wasn't like he wasn't Alice Cooper, the man yet. He sounds like rock music. Yeah, he does. And that's not a dig on him because he, he's he's obviously an exceptionally talented vocalist and I'm like I'm and I'm also conscious of the fact that he helped like establish the whole template for what we think of today as a hard rock frontman uh, but like part of his talent is that he's a vocal chameleon who like kind of bends and twists his singing to sort of fill the shape of the song he's given uh, and I, I guess that what I'm saying here is that's one of the things that makes this band special is uh, like you're, you're almost always getting something new and completely unexpected from him it's like a new vocal on almost every track I always wonder if his voice changed because mm -hmm. his early stuff is in his higher register, but by the like eighties, he's in this more like deep voiced, like his, his speaking voice is. I almost wonder if he had like the Bowie esque cocaine voice change. I assume uh, so. Thing yeah. happen. Yeah, it might have it might have been drugs, but he he hits so many timbres like on this album alone, and it sounds pretty distinct from like We Will Fall, uh, and just uh, he's just all over the place. And I think he said, um, I think it's in that same documentary where he 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 mentioned that. He sang in a higher register to kind of cut through oh, like yeah, the, yeah. the sound of the band. Like so he had to hit of his, his higher frequency just to like kind of pierce through the fuzz. Yeah, that makes sense. Mike? Yeah, this this is a case where I, I think the different mixes equally have something unique to offer. Like Iggy's mix presents it as a, a straightforward but still very good blues rocker. When I And Bowie's mix adds just a little bit of eccentricity around the edges. Like he, I think I read somewhere that he, he wanted the drums to sound like somebody chopping wood. Hmm. And I, I think he, he kind of achieved that effect here. Uh, Johnny Marr of the Smiths has stated that Raw Power is his favorite album. And you can't always hear that from listening to the Smiths. But uh, the song Never Had No One Ever from The Queen Is Dead was modeled after I Need Somebody. Oh, really? Yeah, and you can hear it even if Marr took it in a completely different direction. When you walk without ease, 
sound really big yeah yeah so as for me um i know that on a on a certain objective level uh search and destroy should be my favorite song on this album and and it might be but on a gut level i think it's i need somebody wow wow Uh, interesting yeah like i i think there's a part of me that just really loves the idea of of iggy throwing himself into into a blues song just like just all the growl and and venom and rawr, that he can that he can muster up for it, and also I I just really really love the guitar work on this song and uh like to to, to piggyback on what you said about uh, Johnny Marr loving him, there's there's a great quote uh, that about what he thinks about uh, James Williamson's uh, playing that I think really really uh, applies well to this song, he said. He has the technical ability of Jimmy Page without being as studious and the swagger of Keith Richards without being sloppy. He's both demonic and intellectual, almost how you would imagine Darth Vader to sound if he was in a band. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> oh, it's great. It's fantastic. But yeah, just like there, there's just this just this rage, but like not in, but but not it's bluesy is recognizably bluesy is recognizable as belonging to a tradition from which they developed but it's got something it's got personality it's got something kind of terrifying but not in a, a a generic spooky way there's just something like deep and menacing in the soul of the playing of the guitar work and and again all those those sounds that Iggy is is squeezing out so yeah, this this is the one where when I when I'm listening to this album in, in either mix is the one that that I instinctually glom onto. It's like yeah, this is really really my jam. That Darth Vader comment makes me want there to be a mashup of a Stooges song and no. <laughs> yes, Mike, you should do that. I will. No. All right, let's move on. Uh, the next track here is called Shake Appeal.
Hey, it's the Stooges actually doing some peppy old-style rock and roll with hand claps. I like how straightforward this is until it hits the chorus where there's that weird modulation where it sounds like the band is just, just tilting off the tracks a little bit. I can't tell what is actually happening there. I don't know if Mike has any more. Insight. It's just chords you wouldn't expect to hear. It's just a weird blur of like just... It, it, it's odd. It adds like a, like a, a bit of danger to it. That, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, they play the hell out of this. Like, again, it's, it's not the most innovative song on the album, but it is so fun. Yeah. This is the thing that really fascinates me about this song is that the hand claps feel like an essential element. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a, I always feel like if you took them away, like, you know, it, it would still be, you know, really thick and satisfying and it would have the great, uh, you know, grunts and, and and squeals uh coming out of of Iggy's voice but like the I don't know the the hand claps are like this anchoring uh element to it like the leaven of it or something and yeah it, it, it it's really fascinating to me how the song all comes together again yeah it's not the most uh it's not the smartest song in the world, but it's it's just so, so, so much fun. Yeah, and as we learned in our Sam Phillips episode, hand claps were invented by the Beatles, according to biblical scripture. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Rich? Uh, I love hand claps. That's that's really <laughs> all I have to say. They, they, they feel like one of the great democratic rock and roll instruments. Like, uh, you, you actually can play a tambourine or a triangle with a ton of technical verve. Uh, but, but hand claps are hand claps. Like, almost anyone can do them, and they still sound great, even when they're a bit off the beat. So, yes, I, I, I am very pro hand claps. And I actually brought along a couple clips from British bands from around the same era that also used hand claps in their songs. And uh, the first one is No Matter What by Badfinger, which I actually used to think was literally a Beatles song when I heard it on the radio. No matter what you are. I think a four they are in the mix. Yeah. And the other one is more in the same glam slash punk vein as the Stooges. This is the song Get Down and Get With It by Slade. Everybody raise both your hands in the air! Everybody everywhere! I said I clapped your hands! And they literally announced that the hand claps are coming. I need to hear more Slade. Yeah, I listened to a Slade compilation today, and I swear, like, half to two-thirds of the songs had hand claps in them, so I'm, I think I'm pro-Slade. <laughs> you could fill a whole episode with great songs with hand claps, like Hard Rock or otherwise. That actually might make a good topic for our bonus feed. I was just thinking that. Let's note that yeah. down. But yeah, hand claps, love them. They should be in every single song ever, no exceptions. Yeah. <laughs> Mike? Well, first, I, I want to mention real quick that I, I think my favorite hand claps in a song are in... Uh, it's all too much by the Beatles mm, where yes. they're placed so high in the mix that uh, I, I saw one description that said they sound like the chewing of gigantic cows. And <laughs> that has never left me. But Shake Appeal, I, I like this song because it's basically a scuzzed up Little Richard song. You probably don't need me to illustrate that point any further, but here's a clip of Jenny Jenny because why not? Jenny Jenny Jenny, won't you come along with me? Jenny Jenny, Jenny Jenny, Jenny Jenny, Jenny Jenny, 
Trying to sound like Little Richard is a great way to fall flat on your face. And you can count the number of rock singers who can pull it off on one hand, even if you're missing some fingers. Paul McCartney could do it. Ian Gillen could do it. And Iggy does it here. And, and part of that is that he's, he's just a great vocalist. But also, he has absolutely no fear of embarrassment. Like, he's already jumped off the stage and landed in a pile of folding chairs when everyone else got <laughs> out of the way. So he's got nothing to lose. I first learned about Little Richard from the Pee Wee's Playhouse holiday special. <laughs> All right. We are up to the last track. This is called Death Trip. provide a little bit of more behind the scenes story here the relationship between the band and bowie's management have really started to sour by the time the sessions were underway it was clear that the music they were recording wasn't quite what the management had in mind when they signed the deal Iggy got the sense that they were really wanting something like a american mata hoople that they could easily market and the stooges weren't that in response to these tensions, Iggy chose to end the album on this completely nihilistic note. And he has said, I know this album is doomed. I know the relationship with the management company is doomed. I know I'm doomed for putting out music like this. I know nobody's going to promote it. I know nobody's going to put it on the radio. There's a lot of people who aren't going to like it. But on the other hand, I'm totally convinced this is the best music. That is what I'm singing about. And by this point, we've heard this sound before on the album, but I think this is the perfect closer because it is such an extended, I mean, it's like six minutes long. It's the longest song on the album, but it really is just them throwing out the most kind of like, again, just nihilistic set of lyrics in the album. And uh, a lot of James Williamson just shredding, uh, I really love the opening chord on this song. It's got a really interesting kind of dr dramatic uh, intro to the to the song, but I do really like this one, even if it's not like the most uh, immediately memorable song on here. 
Yeah, I'm basically with you. It's it wouldn't work anywhere on the album except as the closing spot, but it's a really, really great closer. It almost feels like just this this final dumping ground of just all the anger and pent up rage and whatever else uh, got accumulated uh, during these sessions and Iggy just trying to get spit out everything from his throat uh, before the album is over. But yeah, it's 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 really aggressive. Again, like I'm I'm also kind of just like surprised by the length every time it comes on. It's like, oh, that's right. This goes six <laughs> minutes, doesn't it? But but in the moment, yeah, it, it just feels like this is like, yeah, they're just getting out everything while they can because they know, oh, on a certain level, this isn't going to last much longer. And they're probably not going to be allowed to make music like this again just for various reasons. So, yeah, it's it's a really interesting statement. Um, and again, even if they didn't know that they were going out on this uh, for the time being, like, I think on a certain level, they had to know. Yeah, this isn't one of my absolute favorites on the album, but it is the most appropriate way to end it. It's It sounds like it's going down in flames and flipping you off at the same time. And <laughs> that staccato unison riff is completely badass and makes me want to ride a chopper. It's also interesting that Iggy knew this album wasn't going to sell, and there is that nihilism there, but he also knew its day would come. You know, we're going down in history, but just not today. So for this song, I saved the biggest Stooges influence for last, and that's their fellow Detroit area band, the MC5, who Dan mentioned earlier. Uh, And in the Gimme Danger documentary, Iggy describes going to see the MC5 when they first broke onto the scene, and he was just blown away by their stage presence and their, like, enormous raucous sound, which was kind of like the British invasion with the amps turned up to an impossibly high level. Band full of great hair. (laughs) It's true. And if you really want to hear uh, the MC5's influence on the Stooges, listen to their song Loose, which is basically kick out the jams. Yeah. (laughs) And Dan, your last episode was on the Who, who themselves were a huge influence on the MC5. And I don't know if you intended it this way, but covering the Stooges as your very next episode feels like uh, very fitting, like you've turned the page to the next chapter in the history of hard rock. And that's where I'm going to leave it. I'm doing disco next. (laughs) (laughs) The Stooges were an arrow pointing directly to disco. You're right. And we are done with this great, fascinating, messy, whatever the hell that was album. (laughs) Dan, what are your final thoughts? Like we kind of hinted, the Stooges were sort of cursed with always being a few years ahead of what rock audiences and critics wanted. It's the kind of situation that's great for a legacy, but I can't imagine it's a wonderful spot to be in at the moment. And yeah, Raw Power feels like it's Iggy's final attempt at just charging ahead with his own vision of what a rock album should be while resisting any sense of good taste that other people are trying to, you know, convince him to move in the direction of. And, you know, of course, the determination would eventually pay off, including countless punk and hard rock bands in the following decades. So it's an important album. So circling back to some of the things I said near the top, I really like both 
versions of this album. I like this album as a concept. I like both listening to both. And, you know, there's kind of the question of, you know, well, if you're going to pick one, what you're going to pick. And the answer is I would pick both and I would pick neither. <laughs> and that's part of what I love about this, this album. Like it's, it's this transparently clearly great album for what it is, but almost just like kind of exists outside of, of how normal albums would exist. Like in theory there, you know, in, in ideal world, there would be a clear definitive version of this. It doesn't exist. Like both versions of it are great. Both versions have aspects of it that are that are very frustrating. But in a way, like I wouldn't want anything else from an album like this from the Stooges. And I'm glad that also you know gives me an excuse to be able to have two different versions of it because this 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 almost feels like the kind of album that should exist in duplicate. Mike, if you like the concept of rock and roll at all and you have not heard this album, there is a hole in your life. It doesn't matter which version you pick. As long as you pick one, it's up to you. But uh, everything that there is to love about just pure driving rock and roll is here in, in some form. And if you like hard, heavy rock music, I can't imagine you not loving this. And Rich? I think you guys have said everything that needs to be said, so I'll just say... Justice for Artie, the strongest man in the world. I'm still pissed about that. <laughs> uh, on that note, Dan, what would you recommend to somebody who has listened to this album, likes it, and is interested in hearing more? Well, Mike said it earlier, but the Stooges' second album, Funhouse, is basically at a neck-and-neck classic album status with Raw Power and it's a completely different vibe, but it is definitely the next stop if you want to hear more of the Stooges. It kind of invented the template that if you're a garage rock band who wants to sound artsy, we'll put a saxophone on side too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> stop um iggy and james williamson did do one more project together uh in the wake of the stooges iggy was trying to get sober again and they teamed up to do a, a set of demos that eventually became the album kill city which was released under the title of iggy pop and james williamson and it's totally different from raw power it's a far more kind of varied uh just regular rock album with piano and backup singers on it. And it's really, really good. I think it kind of goes under the radar a little bit, but I, I highly recommend that one as well.
Mike, what about you? Well, leave it to me to to recommend the the arty experimental one. Uh, but I'm I'm gonna recommend uh, strongest man in the world. <laughs> yes, that arty. <laughs> I'm gonna recommend Iggy Pop's album The Idiot, which uh, yeah. is completely different from Raw Power. But I I think it's a relevant choice for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, it was written with and produced by David Bowie right before it was right at the beginning of his uh, Berlin period. It was right before he did Low and Heroes and those albums. Um, and you get to hear what the two of them were, were capable of when they had more than a day to mix an album. The other reason is that just as much as uh, Raw Power influenced uh, punk rock that came after it, The Idiot was just as much of an influence on post-punk and industrial music and things like that that would come after it. It's kind of infamous as uh, the last record that Ian Curtis ever listened to. And uh, you can hear the the influence that it had on, on bands like Joy Division. It's very, it's slow and it's druggy and weird. And I like it a lot. I second the idiot first off it, it was i hadn't heard it until a few days ago and it was like getting a, a, a bonus fourth album in bowie's berlin trilogy that i didn't even know existed it's really yeah. good and i'm going to build on that recommendation by recommending iggy pop's other 1977 album which is lust for life and uh, if you've heard at least five commercials in the last decade you've statistically probably heard the title track and our co-host phil maddox linked us to a really funny article from the onion with the headline song about heroin used to advertise bank <laughs> but but it's a terrific album in general and i'm gonna i'm gonna clip a song called some weird sin which will be a real revelation if you thought there was anything original about the strokes As for me, um, I second the recommendations of of, of Funhouse and and the two Iggy Pop uh, albums uh, that are mentioned. I haven't hit, I haven't heard Kill City yet, but um, I've heard good things about it, and I should get to it. Uh, one thing I would mention, uh, and I'm not sure this, this this version is actually in print still, but uh, the uh, version of the Bowie uh, mix of Raw Power that I have, uh, 
was a deluxe version that has a uh, it has a live show at, on the second disc. It's uh, it's a show from uh, Atlanta in 1973. It's got some 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 really rousing uh, versions of of tracks from this album and and from elsewhere. Um, I like it a lot. I, I I put it on from time to time as a as an alternative to to the Stooges Studio stuff that I that I typically listen to. And I think we're done. We are uh, an eight song album. Love that. Up next. It is our holiday episode. We're going to treat ourselves to something that we know very, 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 very well. We're going to be talking about synchronicity by the police. Every move you make, every step you take, Santa's watching you. <laughs> Let's roll some credits. Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy Raw Power in both versions and other albums by Iggy Pop with and without the Stooges at your local record store. And you can also buy or stream it at the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. We've also made you a Spotify playlist that you can find on our website, discordpaw.com featuring this album and every song we clipped in this episode. You can follow Discord and Rhyme at Discord Pod on Twitter for news and updates. Visit my music review archive at johnmcferrinmusicreviews.org. Fair warning, I rate albums in hexadecimal. Editing is by Rich, and special thanks to Mike for production, our theme song, and original music. See you next album, and keep as cool as you can. Yeah.